Hey, I'm Brett Salyer. I'm a computer scientist. And I'm Marcus Riggs, a crypto investor. We're just two friends seeking to learn a little more about the crypto space every week and share our discoveries with you. Join us each week as we go through the evolving world of crypto and discuss everything from Bitcoin, NFTs, blockchain technology, mining, and a whole lot more. We are the Crypto Bros. Welcome back, guys, to the second episode of the Crypto Bros podcast. I am Marcus. This is Brett. Um, Today, we are going to be discussing blockchain technology. Uh, We're going to try and discuss as much of the technology as possible. We're going to try and cover as as many different bases of the technology that we can. Um, And we really wanted to start off before we get into the topics with basically a brief overview of, um, of the blockchain technology, just so you can get an overall kind of definition and explanation of what it is. So Brett's going to give that to us. Right. So what you're going to expect from this podcast is um, hopefully a pretty digestible breakdown of the entire blockchain, um, at least how it's implemented uh, from a Bitcoin perspective. Some other blockchains do it a little bit differently, but essentially we're going to be talking about the blockchain, which is a network designed to handle cryptocurrency transactions such as payments to and from other users on the network, as well as NFT purchases. Uh, the blockchain is a series of blocks that are linked together to form a chain. The chain is immutable, which means it can't be changed. Um, it's a public ledger of all transactions that have happened on the network. There are many different types of blockchains, but the two biggest are the ones uh, that are Bitcoin and Ethereum. The main advantage to using a blockchain rather than the traditional banking system we're used to is that it's decentralized, meaning the transactions are facilitated by many computers or nodes across the world, rather than transactions going through a handful of large corporate banks. Inherent to the blockchain network is a trustless system, which means you don't have to trust that your funds will get from point A to point B. It will happen automatically. It'll just get there, and with almost no chance of fraud, unlike uh, traditional banks, which usually um, kind of expect some degree of fraud uh, in their transaction process. Uh, All your transactions are secure and anonymous, and today we're going to be discussing in detail how this entire system works. Right, so today... When we were thinking about prepping for the podcast, thinking about our approach, because this is a little bit of a daunting topic and it can get really complicated really quickly and we don't want it to get complicated. We want it to be informative and it to be digestible. So we kind of settled on the best way to go about this is uh, Brett's going to ask me some questions about blockchain, hopefully the same questions that you guys would have. And I'm going to ask Brett about some blockchain questions and um and we're going to basically go back and forth uh, throughout the episode. And hopefully that these questions answer a lot of the questions that you may have going into it. Or maybe if you develop a question during the podcast, eventually it gets answered or it was previously answered earlier. So we we're also kind of all over the place uh, talking about the history of Bitcoin on the last episode. And hopefully some of those questions that you had coming out of that episode are uh, clarified here. Yes. Uh, so I think Brett's going to start us off. He's going to ask me a handful of questions, and then I'm going to turn it on him and ask him some different questions on some different topics related to blockchain. Right. So one of the one of the foundational uh, building blocks, pun intended, uh, for the Bitcoin blockchain network is a block. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Mark because I don't know a ton about blocks. This was his research topic. Um, so I guess we'll just start with the basics. What is a block? So a block, simply put, is a way of combining transactions that are compiled and recorded into a group for miners to check and audit. 
So, so this means all the transactions that somebody, or so like if I was going to send my friend money, that transaction would get put into this block. So the transaction initially doesn't get put into the block. It actually goes into a place called the mempool, which a good way of thinking about the mempool is it's kind of the purgatory for transactions. And eventually okay. a miner will snatch it out of the mempool and it will put it inside the block. Okay, so eventually, so then eventually, yeah, uh, I make a transaction or I send my friend money in Bitcoin that gets put into this purgatory, as you called it, and then and then it gets bundled into a block that a miner is supposed to validate, and then... Yes, okay. well, well, not only one miner validates, but all of the miners will end up validating this because the entire network has to agree that this transaction is legitimate. Okay. okay. Which is what, which is why it's it's a very secure network um, in terms of the validation process because it's not one miner saying, "Okay, this looks like it checks out. We'll put it. We'll put it in. We'll process it." All of the miners will uh, will eventually look at this one transaction and agree that it is legitimate and pass it through. Okay. So I guess maybe maybe even more fundamental than a block. Uh, uh, what is a transaction then? Because we threw this word around. Is there something special about the transactions on a Bitcoin network? Right. So a transaction, it's it, it can be a little bit of a loaded question because we think of transactions as simply like sending money or maybe buying something. But for how a transaction works on the Bitcoin or not the Bitcoin network, blockchain in general, um, it actually breaks down into a few steps, different steps that take place. So the first is called the input. Um, there are inputs, there are outputs to a transaction. Yes. Okay. Specifically related related to the transaction process, there's something called an input, and an input um, basically is what's called a UTXO. So UTXO stands for unspent transaction output. Um, okay. That's it's basically an acronym. I don't know why TX is transaction for in the in the acronym process. I think that's kind of stupid. But it's it's that's what it stands for. It's, it's unspent the, transaction output. It's probably the same reason Christmas is sometimes abbreviated as Xmas. <laughs> yeah. I guess X and Christ. I, are the I same do thing. I do not subscribe to that. Okay, it's <laughs> Christmas. Xmas just sounds weird. Okay. But anyway, back to UTXO. So UTXO again stands for unspent transaction output. Um, so backing up, first step is the input, which is the UTXO that is being sent from person A. So the person sending out the transaction, the person who's facilitating the transaction to person B, who's receiving the transaction. Um, so that is the first step of the transaction process. The second is called, well, I guess they both happen, they happen simultaneously, but these are different things that are happening simultaneously when you make a transaction. So the second thing that's also happening is called the output. Now the output can be broken down into two parts. Uh, the first part of the output is the UTXO that person B is receiving. So the input is the thing that's being sent out. The output is what your is what person B will uh, end up receiving. Uh, and the second part of the output is the spare change from the transaction that will end up being sent back to person A. So if I if I sending the input person A has one Bitcoin and I'm sending you um, 0.5 Bitcoin. It's not that 0.5 Bitcoin is coming out of my account. Actually, the Bitcoin, the whole Bitcoin, will end up being sent in the input process. And then uh, that spare change, which would be 0.5 Bitcoin in this example, will end up being sent back to me, 
what's being sent back to me is an output. So that's that's where the UTXO comes from then because it's an output. It's an unspent transactional output. So that change that you're getting back, that 0.5, is a brand new UTXO? Yes. So go, this okay. so this is why this is why the Bitcoin network is inefficient in my, in my opinion because if if you if you start to think about this, you can you start to quickly realize wait a minute. So am I just are do these UTXOs eventually just like combine when they come back into my account? No. So the balance is shown to you um, you know as one um, balance basically, you know, so when I'm so when I send out 0.5 Bitcoin of my one Bitcoin It'll just show in my account. I have 0.5 Bitcoin But that was sent back as a UTXO and if you keep doing this So if you keep sending people money and, and facilitating these trades or these withdrawals You can actually start to pile up UTXOs Okay, so you could have a whole bunch of UTXOs spread across your entire account um, but like in your wallet, if you were on Coinbase or <clears throat> Kraken or something like that, they would all they would all be shown as one one balance. But in reality, you have a whole plethora of UTXOs uh, tied to your tied to your wallet. Yes. Okay. So so there, but there is there is a way, mathematically speaking, there is a way where you can have say three UTXOs because you've continued to facilitate trades and you just keep getting them back there is a way to actually go from more utxos to less utxos and the way that would happen would be say i need to send you 0.5 bitcoin but i have so the total amount i have is 0.6 bitcoin so i would have 0.1 remainder but that uh, 0.6 bitcoin that i have is made up of three utxos and each one is 0.2 bitcoin 0.2 bitcoin 0.2 bitcoin so I would end up sending out all three of those UTXOs to you, mm. but I would only get one back, which would be a 0.1 Bitcoin UTXO. So there is a way that you end up, you know, you don't just compile it for forever. Eventually the math will work out or eventually you decrease um, the amount of UTXOs you okay. have. But still, it's it's inefficient because why? Uh, first, uh, my first question when I was researching this was, first of all, how is it efficient that I have to send out basically my balance in the first place? That doesn't seem, that seems like it, it, the more you think about UTXOs, the more you realize it's adding steps to the process that are just unnecessary and they make it inefficient. And they also, because there's these different aspects that the blockchain is needing to facilitate, it adds unnecessary pressure um, on the network, which which is, I think, one of the many reasons why Bitcoin is seen as inefficient compared to other types of blockchains like ethereum so it's sort of like then having a whole bunch of quarters as change and if you need to send someone you know five dollars you clearly don't have a five dollar bill you only have quarters so you have to sum up all your quarters to equate to that five dollars that you need and then all those quarters get get used up like you were saying, it kind of th that these are these are the UTXOs in this example. All those quarters that you are using get used up, and then you have what, however many quarters you have left over. I don't know. Right. No, that's that's exactly right. So the way to think about it is uh, the way to think about UTXOs is if you have if you have um, ten dollars, say, in your wallet, and your in your wallet represents basically um, you know a crypto wallet. 
you have $10, but then you open up your wallet and it's just this massive Ziploc bag of quarters. You still have the $10. That's what shows up when, you know, you type in, you know, Coinbase or whatever and you log into your account. But what you don't see, all you see is the fact that you have $10 in your wallet. You don't see that, you don't see that literally, uh, you don't see all the UTXOs that make up that $10. So it's it's deceiving. This is why a lot of people don't know about UTXOs because out of sight, out of mind. You, you have no idea that this even exists, but it does. And again, it's I think it's very inefficient. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's cool. I mean, it does sound like it could be inefficient. I'm not, I've not done any of the analysis on that, so I have no idea. But it seems like if a person were to have a whole bunch of, in, in our example, quarters pile up in their account, that's not really something that that I think would be very good on the network. Um, especially, I mean, you'd have to keep track of all these UTX, UTXOs in some way. So if they just start piling up, say, say you're not a big spender, but someone just keeps sending you sending you money uh, or bitcoins or whatever it may be and these utxos just keep piling up in your account i can see how that could become sort of a, a stress on the network yes so also one thing i did not mention because uh, you know i, I kind of wanted to to drill in uh, the process of utxos and, and their role there is a there is a third aspect to this transaction process and it's called the generation transaction uh another way of uh well, another uh, term for it, I guess, would be the Coinbase transaction. So is a whole different type of transaction? Uh, so it does happen, I believe, simultaneously with the inputs and the outputs. Maybe you could correct me on that, but I do believe it happens basically simultaneously. Um, so this is the transaction. This doesn't go to person A or person B. This actually is a fee that is given to the miner for processing this transaction and putting it into the block. Oh, okay. That's, think, all, that's all it is. I think goes. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, the uh, the Coinbase transaction is, um, so it's, 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 as far as I know, it's its own transaction. It's, it's a separate type of transaction. Um, you have your normal transactions where, um, as we just talked about, funds will be sent from person A to recipient person B. Um, and then there's a fee or gas if you're used to Ethereum um, associated with that that gets paid to the miners. But then there's the Coinbase transaction, which um, I believe is a whole different type of transaction that is reserved for the generation of tokens or coins. Um, and I say that because when a miner mines a block, there is a reward associated with mining that block. Um, right now, I think it's 6.25 Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So, where does that come from? Where does the six point two five come from? No one's sending it to them. Well, it's it, it's so when you have a so like like we mentioned in the last episode, there are only twenty one million Bitcoin. There aren't actually twenty one million Bitcoin um, being circulated right now. I think it's uh, I think we just crossed ninety percent. Was it? So that would be uh, I think like nineteen million, roughly nineteen million Bitcoin that's on the market. So although we do know we have a we will have a capacity of 21 million Bitcoin, um, a really good way of, of slowly leaking uh, new Bitcoin out onto the market is to one, pay it to the miners, which are, you know, um, reward for. 
Yeah, but but the the miners are what uh, are, is is the foundation of the coin at the end of the day because they're the one making a secure network and they're the one basically facilitating the network. Right. So a, a good way of almost wealth dispersion is to be able to give out um, transaction fees to these miners because one, it does actually cost money to run these miners. Like these miners don't run on you know well they can run on solar, but the vast majority of them run on electric and electric costs money. And they use a lot of electric, so these so these coins, the Coinbase transaction, it is generating. Um, it's basically taking from coins that aren't yet in the market, but pulling it from the ca- the capacity of the amount of coins that will eventually be generated. It's taking that, uh, and then it's giving it to the miner for processing the transaction. Okay, um, that makes sense. So so that's the way that the blockchain can bring into existence coins out of essentially nothing and, and give them to the miners as the reward. Or if you're in a pool, it would disperse that reward amongst everybody contributing to that pool. Yes. Okay. Um, now, we talked about transactions um, and then a block. But how many transactions can a block hold? So that's that that's an that's a little bit of a dicey question, and the reason it is because it actually does depend on the blockchain. So uh, Bitcoin has its own blockchain. Ethereum, for example, has its own blockchain. So with each blockchain, the amount of transactions that one block can hold does differ. Um, but for for example, for the Bitcoin network, the you know the most popular one, obviously. Uh, each block holds uh, estimated 1,500 to 3,000 transactions per block, uh, but the average amount of transactions per block is 2,500 transactions. So, Is there a limit as to how many transactions can be in this block? Yes, and the reason there is a limit is because there is a limit on the data that can be in the block. So there's one megabyte um, of data that can be stored okay. per block. So it's it's... Really, it's it's bound by the capacity of the amount of data each block can have. That's that's why you can only have so many uh, transactions. Okay, and I know this is kind of controversial issue. My um, there's a lot of people on two sides of this of this argument here because the Bitcoin block, one megabyte. I mean, you'd, you'd probably think that's not very much data at all, and you'd be correct. A megabyte, um, even for just transactions like this just text or data you know it's not like a large video file or anything like that one megabyte is still not a whole lot of a whole lot of uh, data so what are the benefits of having something that's a small block like in bitcoin and then a larger block like a lot of people are trying to push for right so there is a bit of controversy in the in the the crypto space about you know should we increase the block size and have bigger blocks or should we you know keep the same block size or maybe even make them a little smaller um and i think they're actually you know i was i was trying to formulate my opinion my own opinion while researching this and i actually found decent arguments for both um i i think it mostly depends on you know how you want to apply crypto and what in what role you want to have it serve um, so I think depending on your uh, what you want out of a given coin, you know whether you want everyone to be using it, you know to buy Starbucks or whatever, or whether you're more interested in the security of the network. I, I think it just depends on your priorities a bit. 
but there are there are a few main good arguments for each side. So for small blocks, um, it is more decentralized uh, to have a small block network, and the reason is is because you it's easier to operate a node uh, or a miner um, because when you have a big block, uh, you you have to have a bigger node to be able to run the network. And the problem with having a bigger node is it really it really becomes a lot more cost heavy. And so when it becomes cost heavy, you really take it out of the average person's hand to be able to do that. Um, so you end up getting more corporations that are, corporations are just really wealthy business people that are able to operate these. And that's really a problem because the the less nodes you have on the network, the less people are agreeing that a transaction is valid. Um, and that's a problem because the reason um, you know it's decent crypto in general is decentralized and secure is because you have a lot of people looking at the same thing. So, for example, if if you know I have something I want to entrust you with, and I say, hey, can you? Can you make sure this is legitimate? You look at a given piece of paper, maybe it has a fact on it. You say, yes, that is correct. Trusting one person it, to come to a specific agreement on something is not near as safe as taking it to 500 people and all 500 people agree that is legitimate. So it seems like it might be a little bit of a step backwards if you have the block size increase. And you say that it would require bigger nodes. I'm assuming you mean that it's going to be a node that's more powerful and and uh, directly related with that would be the price of the node to and the, the the price to operate and maintain it would be more expensive. Yes. And and then that would give you just like the uh, sort of the elites of the world, the the guys with all the money uh, running all of these nodes, and then all the smaller guys who want to contribute to the network wouldn't be able to um, do something like that as easily. Correct, and okay. that kind of, and that kind of completely defeats the purpose of, like crypto. The reason people love crypto, uh, is because they love the fact that it is everyday common people that are securing the network, and you know we talked about this a little bit last episode, but we one of the big draws for crypto is the fact that you have you have a a network of of nodes. And they all can confirm that something is true, but your personal information about the transaction is not able to be seen. So there is there is some metadata, which we'll get into it a little later. There is some basic data about each block that is public information, which is nice because that, that's another form of security. Uh, it doesn't reveal any personal information of the transactions themselves or like, you know, your 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 key or anything like that. Obviously it wouldn't. That would defeat the whole purpose of security. Um but yeah, so that's that would be one argument for small blocks, and actually that's an argument that that the more I researched, I actually came to agree with. I do I do I do prioritize security um, of the network over block size because like crypto, no one no one cares about crypto or finds any value in crypto if it is less secure. That is that is literally one of the top three reasons people love crypto and people trust the wallets they have is because it's extremely secure. You could make an easy argument that it's even more secure than the banking system because of the technology. Um, but an, uh, another thing 
another argument you could say for small blocks um, is that by the time you get to a block size big enough to support every consumer transaction, so this would be the argument that, hey, I want, you know, I want Susie to pay for her latte with Bitcoin. Someone that wants to turn Bitcoin into an everyday user item, turn it into a real currency used that could actually rival, you know, something like fiat currency. Um, by the time you would get to a block size big enough to where you would achieve that goal, uh, you have so few nodes on the network that is able to process block sizes that big if you really wanted to increase the block size to, you know, as, as much as humanly possible. You'd have so few nodes that would be able to process these transactions and legitimize them on the network uh, that you would pose a serious security risk to the blockchain and to the decentralization of the of the chain in general. Um, right, because like one of the one of the main complaints about um, crypto in general is the transaction speed. I think the the average transaction speed for Visa and Mastercard was what fifteen thousand transactions per second. I read. 3,000. 3,000? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, either way, that's a heck of a lot more than Bitcoin, than Bitcoin which is right 4.6 transactions per at, on, on average per second. Okay. Yeah. That's, just a little bit more. That, yeah, that's just... <laughs> it's a little bit more. Just a little bit. So, is this something that Big Blocks solves? So... Potentially? Big, so, Big Blocks don't... Big blocks can't solve this this main gripe that that small block advocates have, which is the security problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a different solution, a solution that Ethereum uh, has decided to take upon itself with a with a crypto called Polygon. Um, and basically, this solution to we want to fit more transactions, we want lower gas fees, which are transaction fees uh, for the miners. We want lower gas fees, um, but we don't want to increase the block size at the expense of the security of the network. So what is that solution? The solution is called a uh, layer two network or second layer. Um, and well, honestly, I would say you're probably more qualified to talk about second layer because I, I know the basics of it, but I don't know if I could properly explain it. But second layer uh, is basically, I would say it's the happy medium between the priorities that small block people have and also the priorities that big block people have because big block people at the end of the day their main argument for big blocks is we want to make this an everyday currency for everything we want to we want to make this we want to truly take this past the investor and into the consumer so what i know about layer two and i'm by no means any expert in it and i still have a lot of research that i can do and learn more about them um, but as you mentioned, Polygon is an example of one of these layer two solutions. Um, and the, the main goal, um, as far as I know, is that, that they aim to increase the transaction speed of the network that they're on top of. So in Polygon's case, they sit on top of the Ethereum network. And their entire purpose is to, so, or to, to offload transactions from the main Ethereum network and process them um, on their own network. Um, and their own network has their own specifications for it um, that that increase the transaction speed. So Ethereum can stay, or you know, Bitcoin, whatever network wants to implement a layer two solution, can they can benefit from the transaction speed of the layer or by implementing a layer two solution, um, but not have to compromise their main network 
by increasing the block size. So you still have that, that sense of security. Well, not just a sense of security, but you do have the security. Right. Um, and I believe Ethereum has a couple of solutions that they're talking about adding to their main net, their main blockchain. Um, maybe we'll talk about that more in a future podcast, but mm-hmm. essentially that's coming down to multiple things like sharding, and uh, that's a whole nother bucket of worms, but sharding in, in combination with something they're calling rollups, which is another layer two solution, is according to the CEO, supposed to increase transaction speed up to 100,000, yeah. which is... You don't even need that. <laughs> you, which, could pro- yeah. you could easily process the transactions of an entire country at 100,000 TPS transactions per second. Yeah. If Visa is able to do it with 3,000, which is, you know, 3%, uh that is that is more than enough however i am curious uh, i'm slightly skeptical as to how they get to that number i i haven't you know i'm i'm not saying it's wrong or untrue i just i don't know enough but i do want to know more about that because that's fast that would be that would be a game changer in the crypto space if that was actually true right and and i mean he's a smart dude maybe maybe it's legitimate i'm not sure if if everything is going as planned but uh it sounds extremely promising, and it really makes you wonder what's going to happen to these existing Layer 2 solutions, because Polygon is not associated with Ethereum. Like, it's not developed by developers, as far as I know. It's its own project um, mm. by a different community. So, and then they have their own coin, so I'm does, not sure. Does the, does the community, like, talk to uh, Vitalik, the, the co-founder or not? Or I, I'm sure there's some I'm communication, sure, right? Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there's some communication there. It was probably um, something pitched to Vitalik and he was like this sounds great but he basically let them um, you know run the project and then I launch. can only speculate I'm sure there's some some articles out there that explain that maybe in more detail but I assume that Polygon was started uh, by Vitalik so that that's kind of interesting I actually didn't know that yeah I don't I don't think so because if if that were the case I would expect him not to be implementing rollups but rather to implement Polygon as the the official Ethereum layer mm. 2 solution but I, I really don't know Mm, yeah. So was there was there more to the benefits of small blocks and big blocks? Right now, I think we know that small blocks um, is good because it increases security, um, as opposed to big blocks, which would probably centralize things a little bit more. Assuming, or at least make it more probable that centralization will happen eventually, if not now. Right, because, I mean, um, and we talked about this last episode, it seemed like Satoshi Nakamoto was sort of under the impression that Moore's law would take effect and that the cost of hardware requiring us to, uh, or giving us the ability to run these very large nodes um, at like maybe a, an enthusiast gamer's uh, budget would be. Right. Um, but that, that doesn't seem to be the case yet. Uh, Moore's law is kind of not really increasing the, 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 the amount of... Um, the rate at which the the speed of our processors and stuff like that is increasing is not really holding up to Moore's law so much anymore. Yeah, and I, I think I think this is why a lot of people, although Bitcoin is is the oldest and first to market, I think this is why a lot of people consider Ethereum um, kind of leading the charge in the crypto space because I think they're doing things um, that a lot of other currencies just aren't getting into, and in terms of of trying to figure out how to balance this big block small block dilemma i think they're really at the forefront of trying to find that happy medium ground 
while simultaneously making it possible for something like Ethereum to be used at the consumer level. So right. that's that's why Ethereum is like, that's why it's my, in terms of conviction from an investing standpoint, Ethereum's number one for me. And it's specifically because, um, you know, well, I'm sure we'll get into Ethereum in a deep dive, but Ethereum does so many different things, but not only is it doing a lot of different things like NFTs, smart contracts, uh, things of that nature, um, but at the same time, it's also pushing the envelope continually on this dilemma of the big block, small block situation where it's where it's maximizing decentralization, but also at the same time, it's 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 making it's creating solutions where TPS is going to be maximal. I mean, 100,000 is ridiculous. It's making it viable as an actual currency. So it's, right now it's centralized, but yeah. I mean, the gas fees for Ethereum are outrageous, and that's because there's so much like the network's getting congested it's mostly Um, by nft the nft space yeah you know if you have like a game or something like that that are making um they're increasing their transactions on net on the ethereum network and stuff like that it's going to cause congestion demand for space on the block is going to go up prices are going to go the the gas fees are going to get higher um that's one of the advantages to using polygon like we mentioned earlier is the gas fees are a lot less because you know they they deal with that right yeah but I think the if if I had to, so it kind of sounds a little. It, it might sound a little bit like I'm I'm kind of hitting on uh, big blocks a little bit. But the one objectively great thing about the big block argument is big blocks because you can fit more transactions inside of the block. Big blocks uh, really increase the transaction per second speed, which is a really big plus. Um, especially it, especially for just example like we were talking about. If you look at the Ethereum network. Um, and you look at the gas fees that are really high right now and have been really high for a while, something like Big Block would um, definitely make it much more viable to alleviate um, that congestion. So that is a really good argument for Big Block. That's true. I mean, there's no point in having a currency if you're not even going to be able to use it as one. Right. But at the same time, there's no point in switching to a whole new currency if it has nothing more to offer than our traditional banks do. Exactly. So it's it's a matter of finding that sweet spot where you can maximize both the the security and uh, you know the speed and the low transaction. It's just uh, a matter fees. of time. I mean, we're gonna get there. It's just a matter of time. I think so. But I think that the reason there's such a passion behind uh, there's a there's a there's a quite a big community behind Ethereum is because Ethereum it at least appears is is trying a lot harder than some of these other cryptos are at solving these. I would argue the biggest problems in the crypto space, the biggest bottlenecks. And I think Ethereum is really trying to uh, address it head on, um, which this really wasn't necessarily an Ethereum podcast, but I mean, I do love Ethereum. And I, and, I, and, and not, not only that, though, but it's a lot of, as we continue talking about blockchain technology, you'll realize a couple potential problems or current problems, um, you know, uh, bottlenecks with uh blockchain tech um ethereum's really actually starting to find solutions to these so it's really interesting to see so we talk about blockchain but we're talking about blockchain in the context of 2022 imagine you know listening back to this podcast three four years from now and seeing all the things ethereum is going to be able to do you know wait we may eventually be laughing at you know these problems we're talking about because they may become you know outdated or you know a pastime right so we got a little bit off track there. We were talking about blocks and kind of went off on how uh, 
how great Ethereum is and how high their gas. I can't are. help it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we have all these blocks. We've we've gotten to this point where we've talked about transactions. We've talked about blocks. We've talked about that transactions go into blocks. I'm sure that there's there has to be a reason or, or a need to be able to identify these blocks on the chain. So how do you do that? So how do you tell one block apart from another on on the chain? Um, re- rephrase the question. I don't really understand it. So if you have block A and then block B and then block C, right? Um, and they're all chained together, how do you tell what block A is and then what block B is and block C is? Is there some sort of ID that's associated with these blocks that, that people need to know? Oh, you're asking about the header. Uh, well, yeah, the header, but the, the, what, what's that, in the header that, basically like, yeah. So are you basically asking about the hash that, that basically connects the blocks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The block hash. Yeah. Okay. So there's something called a, actually, let me, let me find my notes real quick here. So I'm not talking out of my butt. Um, I actually had a couple key notes on headers that I did want to talk about. So, so, um, for those that don't know, a header is not something specific to blockchain. Um, it's used all throughout computer science. It's basically a way of describing um, something on the computer. So if that be a file, it might be a web page or something like that. It's 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 a lot of times metadata associated with what that object is. So if it's a HTML file, it could give you things like. Um, the creator of the web page, the the name of the web page, the version of HTML, or something like that. Or a header might describe how a file type, um, or what what a file type is. So a doc, uh, a Microsoft Word document might have a header at the at the top of the file that's that the user doesn't see when they're opening a Word document. But right. So in in terms of how blocks are specifically linked together, they're actually linked together using cryptography, um, which basically means each block contains a cryptographic hash uh, of the prior block which links the two blocks uh, you can trace this link all the way back to the first block uh, which is called the genesis block which i think every block on each blockchain the first block is called the genesis block it's just a way of saying hey that's the first one it's the beginning yep yeah um you know i thought i was gonna ask you about blocks connected together but you had to you had to pull a whammy on me there didn't you hey i mean i could talk about how the blocks chain yeah that's okay that's okay i see you throw me curveballs man you throw <laughs> me curveballs that's okay that's okay i forgive you <laughs> um do you have any more questions for me um can you can you explain what a, what a block hash is not as good as you can, <laughs> if you want me to be honest. <laughs> okay, so uh, a block hash, um, at least as far as I know, we talked about, or briefly, the header and how it contains things about the block. So there's something, there's there's information about a block that someone might want to know, like when was it, when was it mined, um, which block, which number on the chain is it like is it the the 5,000th block is it the 6,000th block um what are the transactions in it um and you can look this up online too yeah the timestamp and when it was added to the block you can go to any block explorer like you you want to give them like a website where if they want they could like look this up on their own and just like if they would just want to play around and and see what we're talking about in terms right, of right like yeah you, you can go in there and just enter 
the number of the block, click on Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever, and it'll give you all this information about the block, things I just mentioned, like the time it was mined, the time it was added to the block, uh, who mined it, how many transactions are in it, etc. Um, that entire header, if you were to run it through a hash function, which is a mathematical function that essentially um, encrypts the data. I mean, it's not encrypting because encrypting implies that you can decrypt it. Um, hashes are meant to be one way, which means once you hash it, you can't get back to the original hash right. by, by some form of decryption. So you hash the block, and that gives you a 32-bit um, hexadecimal number uh, that represents the entire block. This is referred to as the block hash. And the block hash is basically the ID of the block. No block will ever have the same block hash. And the block hash is what's used to link the blocks together because a, a block that is freshly put on the blockchain will refer to the last block on the blockchain by its hash. So they're not, they're not physically chained together um, or even, you know, like digitally chained together. I mean, right. they are digitally chained together, but there's no it's like just each one points back to the last. It's a reference to the last block. So B points to A, C points to B, D points to C, and that they're pointing to their block hash, and that's the way that they chain together. So would you say it's accurate? Um, it's accurate to say that a block hash is basically a block ID number. Yeah, it's it. A lot of people equate it to like a human fingerprint because they're, they're it's not, unique. Yeah, it's unique. It's not going to differ. And anytime you change something in the block, the entire block hash will change as a result. Mm. So that's why it's sort of tamper-proof. As soon as, um, I don't know, if there was some malicious hacker out there who wanted to try to change one of the transactions in a block, that would set off a whole bunch of red flags because the block hash would change, and then the block that followed it would be pointing to a hash that no longer existed, and then that would change all the way up and down the chain. So it just it's sort of a snowball effect or like a domino effect. When one changes, it changes all the way up the chain mm -hmm. to where we currently are. And that's one of the main security reasons, uh, the reasons for people, why people love crypto so much because things like that just doesn't allow hackers to get away with much or anything. Right. Uh, yeah. So I have a couple questions for you. It's your turn. And and just so everyone knows, I do have a basic understanding of the questions I'm going to ask, but I purposefully really don't have much more than a basic understanding because I wanted to put myself in the mind of the questionnaire. So if I have any follow-ups, they're most likely um, they're most likely just me talking off of the cuff because I'm actually interested in something that he brings up and it poses a, another question from that. Um, so the first question that I have is how does this blockchain network generate new blocks? So we kind of touched on this briefly already. Um, we talked about blocks and then how transactions are bundled in the blocks by miners who are pulling from what we call the memory pool. And then they put these transactions in the blocks and then the miners are in charge of putting these new blocks on the chain. So if you wanted the, the plain and simple, no more, this is all you need to know, I want to explain this to my family type of explanation, the miners put new blocks on the blockchain, and that's 
That's it. I mean, they take the transactions, put them in a block, take the block, put it on the chain. That's that's the easy one, two, three um, answer to this question. But the reason you need miners, because you'd be asking yourself, why not just get something like a Raspberry Pi or just like any old computer to put these blocks in the chains? Because, you know, these miners, they're, they're called miners because they're mining blocks. What, what is the mining process? Um, and that's a little bit more complicated. Some networks do that differently than others. The Bitcoin network uses something called a proof of work algorithm. And that is a whole nother can of worms we can get into, a whole nother rabbit hole for another podcast. But essentially what's happening with the miners and the proof of work algorithm is every miner is incentivized by a reward of 6.25 Bitcoin. Everybody wants that reward because it's a lot of money. It would be really nice <laughs> if my miners or or Marcus's miners could uh, go out and... I got I to gotta do some quick math on how much that is. 6.25 times whatever new monthly low Bitcoin so, is at. So the current reward for, for successfully mining a block of Bitcoin at current prices, obviously... Is two hundred and fifty three thousand one hundred and twenty five dollars. Right. So you know, it'd be it'd be pretty nice if you had a miner. It's a good day at the office. <laughs> mine a block, and then you go out and buy a house. <laughs> like that. That Ta-da. that'd be pretty pretty cash money. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it's not as easy as that. Um, this proof of work algorithm is kind of brutal. It forces competition between every miner on the blockchain network to compete for this reward. And essentially, it's a lot of people say it's a cryptographic puzzle. I mean, it is. Um, and that's what I'm going to refer to it um, for this question because the, the actual algorithm, what it goes into, is much more complicated. Uh, but basically, the first person to finish this puzzle um, gets the reward because every, so every, every miner on the network, like we had mentioned, is putting together their own block of transactions so it's not just one miner who picks up transactions and bundles them into a block or rather they're not all working on this one block they're not all working on the same block they have their own every miner is pulling from the memory pool of transactions and putting them into their block one miner's block might look different than another's because they pull different transactions if those two blocks have the same transactions in them that would result in some form of double spending, which is something that we can't have. You can't have like a transaction that gives, takes money from me and gives it to Marcus, and then another another miner picks up the same transaction, and then they both go on the go on the chain. That wouldn't be good. I'd be getting robbed, right? Quite frankly, and I don't want that. Yeah. And uh, so what has to happen is they have to compete for who gets to put their version of their block on the chain. And that's the, this proof of work algorithm. They t- solve this cryptographic puzzle. And the first person to do it says, hey, I've got the answer. All you other miners, check this out. They'll all say, yep, looks good. Once that happens, the miner who mined the block and the rest of the miners came into a consensus that says, yes, this is good, puts his block on the blockchain. And after that, they all start over. They pull more transactions. They put them in their blocks. They all start crunching numbers, and they uh, compete again. And if and if the miners who were working so hard to get that block 
don't get anything out of it, it's just wasted electricity, which is one of the biggest problems people have with the Bitcoin proof of work algorithm because it is very, very power hungry. Um, I know Mark and I, we're not mining Bitcoin, we're mining Litecoin. It's not nearly as difficult to mine Litecoin as it is Bitcoin right now. Right, and you and you can actually uh, you can actually look this up. You just type in like if you literally type into like Google Bitcoin difficulty, you can actually see a chart of the network difficulty. And if you want, you can pull up a, a Litecoin or an Ethereum chart of mine of uh, you know mining the given currency. You can actually see um, how the difficulty has just had this parabolic curve since Bitcoin really took off and has become mm-hmm. much more mainstream because people are like, oh, this this technology sounds amazing. I want to buy a miner. Yeah. And, and the more people are on the network, the harder it gets to do the same thing. And not only that, but there's, a, there's another aspect to this we haven't talked about. Over a certain period of time, um, the reward for mining a block actually halves. Yep. Yep. Which, that kind of sucks. So, but, but in terms of this process we're talking about where... The, the, each of these miners goes on their own quest to to take transactions out of the mempool, put it into their block. This whole process of start to finish of creating a block, coming to consensus on it, and putting it on the chain. This for the Bitcoin network, this takes about ten minutes at the moment. Right in, in early twenty twenty two. Well, the what I'm citing it says December fourteenth, twenty twenty one. So I'm sure it's very similar, very close. Right, and and a lot of people have a problem with this. Because it incentivizes people to spend tons of electricity. I mean, me and Mark are probably operating a 30, what is it, like roughly 30-something miners, ASIC miners. and Between you and me, 27. 27. Oh, well, we have more. I'm, I'm, our, our total electricity consumption was like almost 20,000 kilowatt hours for a month. Yeah. Imagine the, the like entire planet not an entire planet of the people, but everybody who was mining Bitcoin, all of that added up together. And most of that electricity is basically doing nothing because if they don't get the reward, it's wasted electricity. But this is why people join mining pools. And uh, we'll talk about that in a second, but it sort of uh, mitigates the risk of not finding a block a little bit more. So you're still making money. Right. So just for reference of how power hungry crypto mining is, uh, there's a there's a source cited. It's by Business Insider in September of 2021, so about three months ago or four months ago. Uh, about 0.5 percent, so one two hundredth of all of the world's power goes to mining crypto. That's how power hungry it is. Yeah, that's I'm, insane. It does it, but if you're if you're a crypto miner, you're like, yeah, it sounds about right, <laughs> because you realize how expensive it is, how big of an electricity bill, and how power hungry these suckers are. I mean. Uh, the, the the miner we use, it's called a uh, Ant Miner uh, L3 Plus. Uh, just out of the box default takes 800 watts. Yeah, that, that's over, a big boy. You can overclock that too. Yeah, which mine are. And that's not they're the like only one. Ni- they're closer to like 925, 950 watts, which is insane. Yep. Yeah. So that answers that. I do have another question. My question to this is a bit of a personal question for me because I was actually thinking about this quite a lot this week as we kind of go through some of the, you could argue, inefficiencies of, uh, of the Bitcoin uh, blockchain. question I have is, so say you're the founder of Bitcoin, you're in charge, right? What would be some of the things that you would 
seek to improve about the Bitcoin network specifically? What what are the things that you think are problems and what possibly could be your solutions? So I am a computer scientist. I do some programming. He's really smart, guys, in case you didn't know. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of people smarter than me, and pretty much everybody who is working on Bitcoin right now is, That's what smart people say, by is the way. <laughs> probably smarter than me. There's a lot of things that I don't know about, a lot of internal things that I can't know about um, Bitcoin right now. Um, there were some solutions like SegWit that were implemented to sort of deal with the small block problem and increase transaction speed a little bit. Could you get into SegWit a little bit? I, I honestly can't. I don't know. I know because okay, I, I haven't heard about it. I didn't know if there was some quick explanation you had for this. I've come across it a couple of times. I know it was basically uh, an update that was pushed to the, the blockchain. A um, soft fork, which we'll get in. Don't worry. It's, it's essentially a way of increasing the block size by a little bit by offloading some data. Um, so is it a protocol? Um, it's not. It's not so much a protocol. It's just a different way. I, I, it's just a different way of doing things. Like I, I, it gets. It frees up space in the in the uh, block by offloading some data, so that it frees up some more room. Essentially, I mean that's the really dumbed down version. I need to do some more research into do it. Do you know but, if it would require a fork? Uh, no, no. It's, I mean, it's already implemented. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. it's it's already implemented. It's it's ready to go, and it did it did help things some. But I mean, so things like that, I would never have thought, never have thought to do. Um, so, so, bas- so it sounds like you're saying that although the problems may be somewhat clear to us, the solutions are immensely complicated. So it's it's really impossible to just out of the box be like, oh, that that should change, and you can change it with a flick of the wrist like this. It's like that is not. It's it's is, these are ex- this is an extremely complex technology when you really get down to the bones of it. So the solutions are probably going to be even more complicated. Right. And I a lot of the solutions that I would propose would probably be pretty naive. Um or even the issues that I'm not even aware. Like I don't even I don't even know of all the issues that's that's um maybe plagues the Bitcoin blockchain. One of the most obvious ones are the ones we've already talked about, which is the fact that its transaction speed is like five. Yeah. And on a good day, <laughs> yeah, that's not even that, that's not going to be sustainable as a large cryptocurrency that everybody can use whenever they want. Right. Um, I mean, they could use it whenever they want, but they might be waiting a while. And a naive solution might just say, "Hey, let's increase the block size." And it's naive because there's some problems that come with that, and. Th- Notably, when we've already talked about this, the, yes, the centralization, the problem. decentralization problem. Um, I'm not, like I said, an expert in this. Um, that is a problem that I think needs to be addressed. I do not have a solution to it, but yeah. I would love. I would. I, I'm. I'd I'm, love to get someone. Possibly. I mean, I, I don't know where we'd find them. Possibly, some form of an expert of of, of blockchain on the podcast. That would be really interesting to address this like hey it seems like they're doing a lot better over here in ethereum although the gas fees are high they at least say that there are going to be solutions in the future for this um but it seems like bitcoin blockchain in terms of solutions is a bit stagnant or just it isn't concerned with it so you know it it would be interesting to have that conversation with someone that's a a little more knowledgeable than we are right and and 
It's pretty good when you can say that your chain has never been hacked. Like the Ethereum chain and the Bitcoin chain have never been hacked. I mean, you might have wallets that have been hacked, but that's a user error. Like right. that, that's, a, that's a user problem. The actual blockchains themselves have been subject. I mean, there might have been attempts, but, you know, none of them have succeeded as far as last I checked. Unless yeah. something happened like last night or in the last couple of months and I didn't see the article. And if you combine the years they've been up, uh, Ethereum was what, 2013, 2015? Uh, it was it went up 2013 i think right uh i have to double check that anyway for for bitcoin it launched in you know early 2009 it's early 2022 that's 13 years for a technology is a very a prominent technology it's a very long time to go without being hacked especially when it would be extremely lucrative to be hacked yeah ethereum was out in 2015 so yeah so you take uh we'll, we'll say seven years for there for a round number seven years plus 13 that's 20 years uh, combined of these two chains being up, not a single hack, which just goes to show how secure um, blockchain technology is. Right, and I mean, I that's pretty good. I'm sure there's problems, and we've discussed one, but I don't have any major... I, I dare not provide any yeah. solutions. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just so people get a basic understanding, uh, could you give a quick just a quick summary or definition of what a crypto miner is. Yeah, so we talked about this roughly already. A crypto miner is a special type of node that operates on the uh, blockchain network. Um, we're talking about Bitcoin, so Bitcoin's blockchain. Miners really only exist on a proof of work blockchain. Um, more usually refer referenced as nodes and proof of stake, which is what Ethereum is moving to. But for our example, we're going to talk about it as it relates to a proof of work crypto miner on the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, a crypto miner is a special type of node that runs on the Bitcoin network. Uh, its primary job is to take transactions that are currently waiting in what uh, Marcus referred to as the, the purgatory or the memory pool and bundle them into into like bundles that they then stick into a block. Um, it's the miner's job to make sure that the transactions are valid. Um, so, you know, this person has enough money to send this person, blah, blah, blah. And then they start working on making sure that their block is the one that gets put on the chain. Any of the transactions that they tried to bundle or looked at bundling into their block are simply discarded. And the miners are incentivized to pick up the transactions with the highest fees associated with them. So that's that's why Ethereum gas fees are kind of high, the network's congested, you have to add more fees or more gas to your transaction to guarantee that it gets picked up by a miner because supply and demand, there's not enough not enough room on the block Who's paying the most? Who wants on this block? Right, because the Coinbase the transaction that we talked about earlier, that transaction that specifically goes to the miner, it's it's a bit of a bidding process, right? So so the highest bidder, uh, the person paying the most gas fee, is most likely to be picked up by a miner. So it's in the mempool, the memory pool, the least amount of time possible. Right. So if you if you throw a transaction, um, so if you have a transaction between like me and Marcus, and I and I put in like a two cent fee or a one cent fee or maybe a tenth of a cent or something stupid small it's probably going to sit there for eternity 
Right, because there's no obligation by these miners to take it out of the mempool. Unless unless there's room in the black and nobody else is waiting. Right. That would be the only exception, probably. Which but. isn't super common these days with how popular um, crypto is getting. The, the, there aren't a lot of empty chains out there where it's just like, oh, sure, we, we got no one else waiting in the mempool. You're, you kind of have a garbage pay that you're getting us, so we'll, but we'll take it anyway. Like, that is not something that's common at all on a lot of these uh, chains. Right. And, and all this is like cake for the miner. This is the easy part. Um, the difficult part, and we talked about this already, is when they actually have to append the block to the chain because, like I said, only one of them gets to put their block on the chain. Um, and there's a strong financial incentive to do this, which we said was 6.25 Bitcoin currently, and that halves every so often, but currently that's 6.25. And there's a ton of miners all across the world that are trying to build their own block to put on the chain. So who gets to put theirs on? And that's where the proof of work algorithm comes on. Um, the first miner to complete the process is the one who gets to put their block on the chain um, and claim their reward. But essentially, each miner has a statistic associated with it called the hash rate. The higher the hash rate, the faster your miner is going to be at completing this cryptographic puzzle, this um, process of finding the, prop, the, the, the proper number to combine with their block hash to result in a specific hash with a certain number of zeros in front of it. That's what the cryptographic puzzle is. You're trying to take the block's hash and mix it with a number and hash that together. Hash rate equals speed, essentially. It's the number of hashes per second that a, that a miner can accomplish. The more that you can accomplish, because it's just a big trial and error. It's, it's not really a puzzle. Like, the miners aren't sitting there and going, hmm, I wonder if I just moved this bit over here and this bit over here, what would happen? No, it's 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 almost like brute force. They're just going to town, hashing these things together and seeing what they get. The first person to complete complete it with the, with the resulting hash being within spec or within what the network difficulty requires is the one that gets to put their their block on the chain. They get paid. Um, the uh, the operators of the miners, you know, they do some jumping jacks. They pump their fists. They're like, "We're eating good tonight, brothers." And then they start over. Yeah, every every, every ten minutes on the Bitcoin network. <laughs> yeah, and then everybody else cries, questions why they're doing this, and then they start over. Yeah. Um, there is something called a mining pool, however, however that sort of, like I said earlier, mitigates this risk and. This is essentially just a bunch of a bunch of crypto miners pooling all of their resources together and splitting the reward. So if me and Marcus took all of our miners and made our own pool and did we were all hashing solo mining, right? Yeah, we're all working on the same well a solo a solo miner would be somebody who's off on their own in the examples that we had just listed before. Someone who's completely by themselves, they've got maybe 10 L3s and they're just kind of doing their own thing. However, if me and Mark, I say if, me and Mark are a part of a mining pool, it's mm -hmm. called litecoinpool.org, and it, what's happening there is all of my miners, all of his miners, and everybody else who's on that pool are pooling their resources together to work on the same block so that we can complete it faster. And if 
our pool is the one who actually mines the block, then that reward gets split amongst the users of the pool, or the contributors to the pool, um, in a way that's fair. And that's usually, um, there's, there's a few different models for that. I believe Litecoin pool uses a pay per share uh, method. And yeah. that, that basically gives you, distributes the rewards based on how much work you put in. Right. So maybe my miners weren't the ones who actually mined the block, but I was a part of the process in getting there. So I get my share of the reward. So if I have proportional to the to the to the amount of hashing power you added to the right. pool. So if I'm putting in ten percent of the pool's overall hashing power, which is kind of absurd. I don't think I'm putting there, in there 10%, is someone but... on our pool that is that is about se- oh gosh. That is about seventeen percent of the pool's uh, hashing power, which is insane. He uh, this person, I I forget their name. For reference, uh, Litecoin right now, it's kind of dumping, but it's like at like $120. This person gets nearly 1,000 Litecoin per day. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a That's lot, a lot, lot of, of Litecoin. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. So this way you guarantee that you're going to get something with the work that you put in. And it's more, right now, at least for us, where we're at in our electricity cost, it's more than the cost of electricity. So it is... Still profitable. It, it, yeah, it's still profitable for us. There is no um, incentive to not do this. It's it's better for us to continue doing it, because why not? I mean, we just let it sit there and do its thing and go about our day, and occasionally it goes down. I say occasionally. It, it, more than occasionally, they tend to just want to, like, stop working. <laughs> um but, Especially you know, when you buy them used and they're four years old and for four years straight, they've done nothing but hash. So. Yeah. And uh, it, it is it is hard to sometimes find one that is working without any issues. Sometimes it requires a, a firmware reflash or something like that. But um, so that's essentially what a miner is. Right. So a quick somewhat side question. If we, we just laid out the, the basically the business uh the business structure of a pool and why it makes sense to be in a pool under what conditions would you say it makes sense for someone say i have so many miners i don't need to share because i have so much hashing power under what circumstances would it make is there a circumstance rather that would make sense to go off on your own um it's really a statistics problem how how likely are you with your current amount of miners to mine a block I don't know what that, that equation is off the top of my head. There's, They're out there. I mean, you can go type it in. I mean, even litecoinpool.org has a calculator that will that will calculate the probability of you finding a block in a week or a month or a year uh, based on your hashing power. I assume once that gets to a point where your chances of finding a block every, I don't know, week is extremely likely. Mm-hmm. And it's the amount of money you get from the reward uh, or rewards that or maybe you mine more than one block a week is more than you'd get if you were in a pool. That's that's where I draw the line. Right. Am so I, there's a crossover point where it's like I'm making less money being in a pool than I am just basically forming my own pool within my own miners. Right. And it needs to be where you're consistently and reliably mining blocks um, by yourself and you don't have to split the reward so you get the whole thing and it would be more than what you'd be making if you were in a pool sharing the reward with other people 
and you would have to have a lot of miners. Like, let me tell you, you're going to need a lot of miners to be able to do that, which is why the majority of people are in a mining pool. You, uh, the, the kind of crossover point, you have to basically have your own crypto mining farm where this is like, this is basically an enterprise for you. Like, l let me see. I'm going to type in, because we're using Litecoin and the, d the difficulty is a little bit different, but at 504 mega hashes for an L3 unit like we use, the probability of finding a block in a year is 25%. So imagine going an entire year and only having a 25% chance. So there's a 75% chance you will not find a block. You just expended 800 watts, you know, 365 days a year to have a 75% chance of not finding anything. So you went negative that whole year by a lot. Yeah. You're going to spend... Um, hundred and sixteen dollars. Sorry. No, I, I got I got the math right here. It's uh, I was doing it while you're talking. So you would expend over the course of a year six hundred and eighty-eight dollars and forty-four cents for a twenty-five percent chance of getting the blocks reward. That that I don't like those chances. In one year. In yeah, an entire year. Yeah, it's not worth it. I mean, I don't I, I don't actually know what the um what the Litecoin reward is. However, if you're in a pool. Currently in litecoinpool.org at the current pay per share rate of 305%, uh, 10 cents um, in electricity per kilowatt hour at $127 in Litecoin, you would be making in 30 days a net profit of $58.43. That's pretty good. $58 doing absolutely nothing. And it, But more importantly, it's guaranteed. It's money. guaranteed. That's a big disclaimer. Well, it might it might change. Right now, it's fifty eight dollars. But if Litecoin were to like drop to two dollars tomorrow, then obviously you wouldn't be making money. But right. So if if you were say you hit that say over the course of a year, Eureka, the twenty five percent came true. You found a block, or you you mined a block rather of of Litecoin. The reward for Litecoin currently per block um, the is twelve point five Litecoin. So at current prices, that's fifteen hundred eighty seven dollars and fifty cents so if you're really gutsy and and you're feeling really lucky you could at a 25 percent chance mine litecoin for an entire year maybe maybe just maybe you could almost yeah you'd about two and a half x your electric but it's a 25 percent chance and not, it, not you, it. you would you would much rather take the guaranteed money which is why pretty much 99.9 percent .9 of people go to a pool, they share the rewards, they like the guaranteed money. And believe me, you want all the guaranteed money you can get in the crypto space because the prices of the coins aren't guaranteed. They fluctuate quite a lot. They've gone up exponentially um, with the popularity, really mostly of blockchain technology um, over the last decade. But the the prices of the coin, it, you know, it fluctuates a lot. So if you can get a guaranteed way of getting a payout um, for you know, spending electricity, um, mining, like you'll take the guarantee. So it, it just makes sense for pretty much everybody, um, to, to, to be in a pool, to join a pool, unless you're like Donald Trump or something. And you've just got like millions of dollars to throw into miners, <laughs> a small loan of a million dollars, Yeah, a small loan of a million dollars, <laughs> small loan of a million dollars goes a long way in mining. <laughs> it would. Yeah. Yeah. You, 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 it's, you probably would be solo mining with a million dollars of uh, mining equipment at that point. You would probably be off on your own. You're not going to be in a pool. 
There's a good chance. There's a decent chance. There's, there's a decent chance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so on the topic of blockchain security, the thing the thing that makes that that makes crypto um, so deadly, one of the many things that makes crypto so deadly to the current banking system is that it is lock tight secure, unlike um, you know centralized banks, which maybe someone even listening has had money stolen from them. Um, or identity theft or any of the many other ways people can make money off of you by hacking you in one form or another. Uh, that does not happen. Or if it does, it's extremely rare that it happens uh, in the crypto space. Like we said before, Ethereum, never been hacked before. Bitcoin network, never been hacked before in the combined 20 years of existence. Um, so I think a really big question would be, why is the network so hard to hack? So... The answer to this question can become sort of complicated. Um, I'll do my best to explain this as simply as I can. Because each block has its own fingerprint, and this fingerprint is the, the block hash that we just talked about, and that fingerprint is associated with the block that comes after it in the chain, if someone were to tamper with the block on the chain, we mentioned this earlier, it would change that block's fingerprint, and that block's fingerprint changes. Uh, the next block's fingerprint uh, well, sorry. If the block's fingerprint changes because the next block is referencing that block's fingerprint, that block's going to notice, and that's going to propagate its way all the way up the chain. So it would not be easy to get away with this. If a hacker, if a hacker wanted to pull this off, he would have to change, starting from where he was on the blockchain, every block after that. So that they all matched and lined up with each other. It's it it's it sounds like it's almost the equivalent of like shattering a mirror. Like you don't just take a piece of the mirror out. If right. you if you take a piece of the mirror out, you end up shattering it completely, and it becomes something entirely different. It's just glass on the floor. Right, and it, and it's like I said earlier, it's like a domino effect. When 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 you tip one, the rest of them are just going to come down with it. So if if he wants to fix that chain, he's got to stand all the dominoes back up in a way that everyone believes. And doing this is so incredibly infeasible, it's so unlikely that it would ever happen because the amount of power that you'd have to have, the amount of hashing power that you'd have to have would have to be more in more than like 51% of the entire network, which goes into this whole 51% attack thing because the way the way chains are assumed to be valid is the longest one is considered to be the accurate one or uh, the the non-tampered with one so if a, some small chain on the side um appears and it seems malicious the miners are going to say oh well this chain is you know 10 blocks shorter than the main chain this can't be right and you know nothing happens with it but what what if a miner had so much hash, or what if what if an, an operator of a mining operation had so much hashing power that he was able to mine blocks so much faster than everybody else because he has more of the he has more than fifty percent of the, the hashing power that he's able to keep mining blocks and then not telling the rest of the network about it, but just keeps adding his own chain together until he gets to a point that it outpaces the main chain. So mm. it branched off the main chain, created its own, and then surpassed it in blocks. The miners are gonna, the rest of the miners in the network are gonna be like, oh, well, this one's longer. This must be the correct one. 
And at that point, the the hacker could take advantage of like a double spending a double spending attack or something like that. Um, but there's there's a few reasons why something like this would almost never happen. Um, there's three reasons, at least that I found, and it's because it would be nearly impossible to actually get that much hashing power to do this. I actually have a number for this. I oh did. really? So I just did the math. So uh, a couple caveats to this math. First caveat is I used. So this is specifically for the Litecoin network. What I did was I took the total terahashes of the network currently, which is currently 355 terahashes. I said, all right, if I take 355 terahashes and divide it by 504 megahashes, which is what our L3s can do, how many L3s would it take to get to 51%? Uh, and so I did that. I times it by a relatively low number, uh, about $1,200 uh, for the miner, which is decent price, all things considered. The price fluctuates with the market, so on and so forth. So the amount of money that you would need if you wanted to get 51% of the Litecoin network, the amount of money you would need if you were buying L3s to get this done, which maybe you use something else, but it's just a, it's just an off-the-cut example. The amount of money you would spend at $1,200 per miner would be $845,238,095,238,095.20. It's actually likely to be higher than that because assuming you are, you're, you're quite that level of an entrepreneur <laughs> and you can Elon will get there Elon can, will yeah, get there <laughs> you convince enough banks to loan you that much money or well this is you 30... are Elon Musk yourself and you have almost that much money <laughs> well for reference this is this is over 30 times the uh, the GDP of the United States it would take 30 years of the United States taking every single dollar gross that it earned to get 51% of the Litecoin network <laughs> well the more you buy up, the less the less supply there is. True. Demand's going to go up. The last person yeah. who has a Litecoin miner on the net, on the on, on eBay or you know Alibaba or whatever it is is going to be like, well, dude, I, I want I want I want I want a billion dollars for this miner. Like, yeah. as, as the supply decreases and this right. one man wants to get to that fifty one percent threshold. He's going to be paying a lot more than just $1,200 per miner all the way to the end. So it's likely to be even more expensive than that. Right. What, what we're basically talking about is an basically an Armageddon, assuming the person with 51%, which it would make sense, person with 51%, has malicious intentions for getting there, right? That would be pretty obvious because um, no one's going to do that without that intention. It's just it's way too much money. This would basically be the equivalent of an Armageddon event in crypto because someone would be able to take over, completely tamper with the network, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you would need, you would need so much, you would so need much lot. money. I, it, like, can you even wrap your mind around like eight hundred well, plus trillion dollars? Here's like, the deal. This brings me to my second point. If you have that much money in miners. A hacker with that much hashing power would be likely to just play it honestly and just start mining his own blocks. This dude could probably make more money yeah. mining solo than trying to take everybody else's money or double spend money. Yeah. Which is which is why a lot of people think that you know an attack like this isn't likely because if you have that much hashing power, you're incentivized at that point to just do the right thing. Okay. Okay, I, I got to say it right here on the podcast, 
in, in front of everybody, I made a mistake. So the mistake was I was assuming 100% of the network. I did the math by the total amount of terahashes and wondering how many L3s it would take to get to 355 trillion terahashes. I only, you only need 51%. So excuse me. It's 436 trillion, oh. <laughs> 500 billion, and, and so on and so on. So you'd need about 436 trillion instead of 855 trillion. My bad. This changes a lot of things, obviously. Well, it also assumes that all the only miners you can get are L3s, and, True. and L3s have 504 mega hashes, but you can also overclock them. You can also buy other versions of miners, which might be a little bit... Um, they might have more hashing power. It's a very safe them, assumption, yeah. though, that you would need hundreds of trillions of dollars to get this done. And Litecoin, for reference, is it has one of the lesser. Its its network uh, difficulty is relatively speaking to its price less than Bitcoin or Ethereum. So it would even be harder for Bitcoin and Ethereum because you would need more. You would need a lot more power to get to that 51%. So we're talking specifically about Litecoin. Like Litecoin, it would be more advantageous to try and go for 51% in Litecoin than it would be Bitcoin or Ethereum because the ratio of price to difficulty is much more um, spread out than Bitcoin or Ethereum is. So we're kind of giving perfect case scenarios in terms of it would be most optimal to get to 51% with Litecoin. And I'm not sure if there was... um another error in the math somewhere but uh there was another article i was reading that was saying that in let's see bitcoin the current the target the target hash rate on bitcoin network is uh 24 trillion some 24.2 something like that i think it is it's like 145 what is it it's 145,472,737.165 terahashes per second. Um, the cheapest, this is assuming the cheapest electricity price in the world at one cent per kilowatt hour. <laughs> that is extremely cheap. Um, and your required equipment is equal to your target hash rate divided by your hardware hash rate, uh, which is equal to about 1,000. Real sorry, quick, 1 what did you say the terahash rate that they have listed? Um, this was in, let's see, let's see, this article as of October 2021, it's saying that the target... It's risen since then quite a bit. 145,472,737.165 terahashes per second. Yeah. So I have here on uh, bitcoin.com slash staff slash different, I have 20, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I actually don't know this. If the network difficulty estimated is on a per second basis, I don't know if that's how they calculate it. But if it is, this is like way more than what you're saying. Well, that's the that's the this difficulty. Is, uh, yeah. Well, I'm ta- I'm I'm kind of relating the difficulty as a ratio. Of, oh, okay. Of that to price. But yeah, they're saying um, in Bitcoin, the total cost, assuming you know, no. No, no changes in price due to supply and demand. The absolute cheapest you We're can get for best case electricity, 13.529 billion, which is a lot even for the richest person in the world. Well, here's the thing. One cent, so they, they were estimating with one cent electric, right? Yep. So what what if we did some quick math? What if we said, uh, so the average, I actually looked this up the other day, the average electric rate um, in America 
is about 13 cents. Um, what if we said this man, richest man in the world, whoever, whatever, whatever big man was trying to accomplish this. What if we said they get a 50% discount, which is a pretty good discount. That would be six and a half uh, kilowatt hours per second. All right. We, we could even go further. We'll, we'll say five for a round number. Five. five. So five would 5x the amount you're spending on electricity, <laughs> correct? So all of a sudden, this this uh, this this thirteen billion, uh, it goes up a lot. Yeah, I mean, just just an electricity cost. I mean, we like that, like that thirteen billion was literally the dream case scenario on not one front, but every possible front going into the equation. Um, yeah, it's 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 no one's saying it's impossible. It is. You can literally do the math and see it is possible. But the only people who would even have a remote chance of being able to get to 51% um, would it would have to be one of the top five people in the world. It would have to be um, people. Uh, people would have to have that that level of money. You'd have to have tens and tens of billions that you could just that you could just pull away, liquidate, and then use um, for this. So this. Um, is- this is actually really interesting. I found there's there's a website called Crypto51.app, and you just typed it in your browser to pull up a page. It tells you Does it do how much. Yeah, it tells you how much, how much you're going to pay per hour wow. of this attack. And uh, Bitcoin right now um, is one one million five hundred eighteen thousand. Eight hundred and fifty-six dollars per hour to carry out this attack. Ethereum's worse. <laughs> Look at Ethereum. Yeah, Ethereum is one uh, one million eight hundred thirty thousand seven hundred forty-six. So one eight thirty. We'll just say one. Yeah, we'll just say one eight thirty for a nice round number. We, we want to give the hacker uh, all the help he can get. A uh, few times that by twenty-four hours. His running cost per day would be forty three million nine hundred and twenty thousand. Yeah, and and that's at a target hash rate of one hundred and seventy five thousand nine hundred twenty seven petahashes per second. Now we're no longer in the terahashes zone. No, no, no. We're in petahashes. Yeah, it, it, it would be, it would be insane. Um, and here's the thing. So say someone say say someone like an Elon or a Zuckerberg or someone that had the money would want to do this they would be like i want to do this the amount of money so most likely if it's someone from like top 10 in the world most likely it's it's held in stock since that is the top 10 top 20 people in the world billionaires it's all in stock so zuckerberg's net worth is in facebook stock elon is in in tesla stock so on and so forth you're 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 the top of a public company at this point it's the only way this is feasible so they would have to liquidate you know well what what was the number like how many billion 13 billion 20? yeah 13 so 13 point. billion 13 billion dollars so elon right now uh this is going to age well elon right now is actually liquidating uh 10% of his tesla portfolio um yeah, off of a poll we won't get into it it's it's, its own story but he's liquidating uh, i believe about 12 billion dollars worth of tesla this is like this is like a top n- news story right now um, and it's twelve billion dollars. Also, if uh, one of these, if if one of these top tier people were to liquidate twelve billion dollars, one that would get people asking questions because it actually so shows a sign of um, lack of faith in the company when you start pulling stock out and you start liquidating it. 
uh, a lot of uh, investors do not like um, CEOs liquidating their stock. So the point is, is, is before even the miners are bought, before anything, uh, this would make its rounds because it would be quite the headline to to liquidate that much stock. So it would get a lot of people curious. This isn't something that you could really do in private, much less buy these many miners in private. This it, it would be next to impossible. So someone sneakily going in and trying to get this fifty one percent from any given network. Oh yeah, for sure. It, it it would be known. Not only that, but once they actually get it, assuming they can get all of them working at the exact same time, because as you and I have found out, it is not easy to get these shady, sometimes poorly refurbished units no. to all work at the same time. So assuming he miraculously does this, or she, whoever it may be, yeah. even if they got it working, it would, if, if half of the network's hashing power just stopped reporting to the rest of the nodes, that's going to look a little shady. Because, I mean, he's out here forming his own chain. He's not telling anybody. Because, right, because if, if he were doing the things the right way. I think you moved the camera slightly. That's right. If they were doing things the right way, they would be, after every block added, saying, hey, does this block look good to everybody? And they'll all say, yeah, and then they'll add it to the chain. You, won't, you don't want to do that, though, because he's trying to form his own malicious blocks. Right. So he's going to keep doing his own thing. So if, if he goes dark for I don't know how long it takes – to actually get his chain long enough so that it's considered legitimate. I mean, the people are going to be raising some eyebrows. I, and, and and if something like this does happen, they're probably just going to shut the network down. Yeah. It's not uh, – people aren't going to be like, darn it, someone got 51%. Oh, Guess well. I'm throwing this transaction through. The network would <laughs> just shut down. And the whole point of getting the, uh, the 51%, it would be gone. I would estimate – I'd say about – Give it a couple hours at most. People would know what's going on. It's down. And, and here's the thing. Because the media is interested in a good story, this would be headline news everywhere uh, that this was happening. And it would reach everyone who has a crypto wallet or something that's worth hacking to the fifty-one to the person who has the 51%. It would reach them by, by nighttime it, easily. And the network is down easily in 12 hours in my opinion yeah i mean it, it would this is not a slow process there's so many hypotheticals there's so many ifs that need to actually happen and line up like the stars would have to align so perfectly yeah. for something like this to actually happen like no one like people may ask like what about the 51 percent? it's like how about an asteroid <laughs> that can kill the earth because that's about the odds we're talking about right here that's the amount of stars that would have to align for for this to actually take place like it's i i think it's it's, it's not something that's not worth addressing because it is worth addressing. Because it is theoretically possible. It, it is theoretically possible. So it is worth addressing. Uh, we wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't. But the point is, once you understand why why it would be next to impossible for it to happen, like it's not a concern. Move on. You know, buy, buy your Bitcoin. <laughs> Tra- transact it. You know, do all the things because like this is not a this is not a concern. If this is a concern, then you know I I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Go back to the bank. I don't know. All right. Uh, we got one more section here. Let's, we're going to talk about. We do uh, not. I have one more question, sir. You have one more question. I have one more okay. question. Yeah, yeah. You thought you were done. I thought I was done. Uh, you are. I'm not going to lie. I thought I had you there. <laughs> I, I actually did have one more question, but I forgot it was the fifty percent. No, uh, the fifty-one percent. Oh. But we totally got into it. So there's no. Yeah, I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Is it, see, see, I need to do what you do. You like bundle questions together. 
and say you get a two for one deal i need, I need to start doing that it's almost like these questions are related <sighs> you trying to diss me bro <laughs> you, you dissing me <laughs> so we, we got we got hard forks and soft forks and then other types of blockchains so we talked about the ethereum blockchain but there's actually lots of other ones out there that exist as well um so marcus uh does every does every token have its own blockchain you know there's things like dogecoin and shiba inu coin um there's digibyte all these others do does does every tradable digital asset have its own blockchain so every so this is where we need to make the distinction of uh tokens and coins which a lot of people don't know the distinction so there are coins um uh, cryptocurrency coins and then there are cryptocurrency tokens uh and there is a distinction and the reason there is a distinction is because a token is a i guess you i guess you can call it cryptocurrency a token is uh shares uh a network with the one that started the network which would be a cryptocurrency coin so every cryptocurrency coin has its own blockchain okay so but you can have multiple tokens on the same blockchain but those tokens are sharing the blockchain of the coin for instance dogecoin i don't know why it's called dogecoin it's stupid but dogecoin is actually a token uh and dogecoin shares the litecoin network um uh another one shiba inu shiba inu shares the ethereum network i believe yes yes shiba inu does share ethereum so um tokens which tokens start to start to play about play a role in the nft space but we won't get into that uh tokens share a blockchain they do not own their own blockchain actually you can uh we were talking about this earlier this week you can make a token really (laughs) easily so easily that brett decided to make the crypto bros token which i thought was funny well what we kind of have a use for but we'll get into that a later time a couple cool ideas um but so to- tokens share blockchains. They do not own blockchains. They do not have their own blockchains. And you can also have multiple crypto tokens uh, on the same blockchain. So a token, for example, um, would operate on an existing blockchain that, that that token was not a part of the creation of. So um, Ethereum or Ether is the native coin for the Ethereum network because it is the, the coin... Um, that was associated with the creation of mm-hmm. the Ethereum uh, main blockchain. But there are all kinds of other like altcoins or tokens or whatever you want to call them mm-hmm. that operate on the Ethereum network, but was not created by the Ethereum foundation or company, whatever it is. A, a, decent, a decent way to kind of, to give like a parallel uh, analogy would be like, the, the cryptocurrency coin that created the blockchain that the token is on, uh, a good way to look at a coin is like a parent company. And then there is a smaller company, um, not affiliated, but was bought out. Now, crypto, uh, just for distinction, cryptocurrency coins, you don't have to, you don't, they don't have to buy the token for the token to be on the blockchain. That's not how it works at all. But specifically, my analogy is, is related to uh cryptocurrency coins are almost like parent companies they kind of they're they're the overseer although they don't have to be affiliated at all like i'm sure in the case of uh uh, vitalik buterin there i'm sure there are multiple coins or tokens rather on his ethereum network that he probably doesn't know because there's a lot of tokens 
Um, oh wait, actually, the Do- Dogecoin might actually be. It's man might actually have its own blockchain. No, it's on the uh, Litecoin network. That's what I thought. Isn't it? I don't know. It well, if, own... if the if, well if Dogecoin happens happens to have its own blockchain, scrap the Dogecoin. Shiba Inu. Everybody <laughs> knows about some Shiba Inu. It's actually a token on the uh, the uh, uh, Ethereum chain. I don't know. There's a there's a chain explorer for Dogecoin, so you can actually see all the transactions that are happening back and forth. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because I know Dogecoin is merged mined with Litecoin, which is why I always assumed it was on the same. It uh, it uses the maybe, script. Maybe we need function, to fact check but... ourselves right here now, but um, but the point is tokens share blockchains with a cryptocurrency coin. They do not have their own blockchain. If they had their own blockchain, they would not be a token anymore. They would be a coin. It's pretty right. much it's pretty simple. Which is why Ethereum has a standard called the ERC twenty, um, which is basically a, a a standard used to implement and create your own tokens um, on the Ethereum blockchain network. Um, and as Marcus mentioned earlier, I did go through some basic research and tried to make my own token, which was surprisingly easy. It probably took me about a half hour of um, coding. And, uh, I mean, I got it up and running. I got it published on the test network, and it really wasn't that hard. But it, it, is, it of course, would be considered a token because it's... You're I sharing... Yeah, I didn't make the blockchain. So right. I'm, I'm taking... You're using uh, Ethereum's? Yeah, I'm using Ethereum's blockchain. Right. Yeah, so token shares a network. Cryptocurrency coin has a blockchain. Token is on a blockchain of a given... Uh, or, yeah, token is on a blockchain of a given network. So if you ever see like something and it says token, it is a currency, but it's it's most likely sharing, or it, it's definitely sharing um, the blockchain of an actual coin. And most likely, I'm not saying this for every coin, don't sue me, uh, most likely is relatively useless. Um, because tokens can be used for a variety of things. They can be used uh, almost like their own kind of crypto Kickstarter. Like there are use purposes for tokens, but they're very different and they're really not solving or even trying to solve any real world problems. Hmm. Unlike Ethereum or, you know, other prominent coins like Cardano. So um, what other kind of blockchains exist then? We've talked about Bitcoin and we've talked about Ethereum, but are there any others out there that are worth mentioning? Yeah, I keep hitting the mic. Yeah, so there are four types of uh, blockchains. Uh, there are the first would be uh, public blockchains, um, which we have already gotten into. Uh, public jo- blockchains uh, enable anyone and everyone to join and contribute to the blockchain network, such as like we've been talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, public blockchains are the ones that are definitely most well known. Those are the ones everyone talks about um, because they're the public one. Uh, the second one is called a private blockchain. Uh, which are useful for businesses to store data in a more efficient and secure environment. Um, you could almost look at it like an online server, basically. So private. that would be more of a centralized blockchain because it's used by a company. Yes, it's it's, it's completely centralized. You took uh, one, two, three, four words away from what I was saying right out of my mouth. Oh. <laughs> uh, private blockchain, unlike a public uh, unlike a public one, is usually meant to be centralized by a, by the person who created it for a specific service, such as you know uh, probably a tech person at say a corporate company or whatever. Uh, corporate companies use a if they want to use blockchain will use a different blockchain. I'll get to that shortly though. 
the third one is called a consortium blockchain. Uh, they are just like private blockchains, with the only difference being uh, that they are being overseen by a group of people instead of a single person uh, that's overseeing it. So it's still centralized, but multiple people or a group of people have access to the blockchain and can change it or maneuver it or add to it however they need to. Um, and the fourth is called a hybrid blockchain. Uh, hybrid blockchains are actually interesting to me. I kind of I kind of went down a little bit of a rabbit hole with them. I knew a little bit about them, but I, I didn't know anything of true detail. Uh, hybrid blockchains uh, combines the benefits of uh, uh, benefits of a permissioned and private uh, permissioned and privacy blockchain with the security and transparency benefits of a public blockchain. So it's very useful for public companies. Uh, who want to securely store some of their data while making other data available to the public, uh, such as quarterly earnings. So say you have an earnings report, you're Facebook. Uh, you need to quickly and immediately uh, get a press release for your quarterly earnings out on the public market. Um, so that's going to have a conglomerate of data uh, inside of that release. Uh, but also, maybe you're storing some sensitive um you know, data maybe about the metaverse or something that you want to keep private that maybe your company is developing. You can store that on a different part of the same blockchain, but mm. it's a private part of the blockchain, which is really interesting because I actually was wondering, I, I didn't actually do the research on this, but I was curious if um, because of the ease and the usability of hybrid blockchains, I was curious if there were actually any companies, uh, public companies that were actually using these um, for earnings and things like that. Um, I actually don't know that, um, but pro, uh, hybrid blockchains are used um, by companies. They really, there's really no other use case for them. Um, by you know, someone you know, someone like you or me, who's who's just a single individual, has zero use for hybrid blockchains because um, you know, if you have something, you're just going to store it on your hard drive or something, and right. throw, throw a password on your computer. Like it's it's not a consumer it's not a consumer blockchain like public blockchains. Um, it's not used for that at all. It's basically a place to centralize data, and then you get to choose what part of that data is public, that can be seen anybody that can see the blockchain, and what part's private. Um, so it really is a corporate, I would call it like a corporate um, blockchain, because those are the only people that really have any use case for it. But th those are the four. So there's public blockchain, the ones everyone's know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. There's private blockchains. There's uh, consortium block blockchains, which is the exact same as private blockchain, except uh, multiple people have access to it instead of one person. And then there are hybrid blockchains, which combine uh, the privacy uh, factors, uh, but also the public factors. So you get to choose what part of the chain is private, what part of the chain is public, and you can add to either one. And that can be run uh, also by a group or a single individual. That makes sense. Yeah. So... What is the point of creating new blockchain networks? So we have these, and I'm talking more about the public ones that everybody uses. I mean, I guess it doesn't have to be public, but if we have Bitcoin and Ethereum, what is the point of creating another one? Is there something that these two aren't doing that we need? Yeah. Need something new? Or? So although we only have four types of blockchains, uh, the ones I listed, and the vast majority of blockchains are public blockchains. Those are the, those are the ones everyone's heard about and are investing in. Um, just because you may have the same type of blockchain, so, you know, like Bitcoin's public uh, blockchain, Ethereum's public blockchain, they have some differences 
uh, we can't really get into, but they're, they're essentially the same blockchain. They're a public blockchain that people can use, people can see, people can verify, people can trade on, etc. They're public chains. Uh, that doesn't mean you'll have the same purpose uh, for each blockchain um, that, say, another coin that wants to use the exact same type of blockchain uh, uses. So, for example, Ethereum is very much in the business, at least at the moment, um, and NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Um, so, you know, that can be, you know, your, your crypto kitties, that can be, you know, a, a, a monkey looking at you sideways you pay half a million dollars for if you're Eminem. Uh, <laughs> yeah, did you see that? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> that was, I thought that was funny. But uh, so, so you have use cases like that. Um, I, I would argue that Ethereum is, is more so in the, I think it has more of a novelty aspect um to it and what you can do with it which i don't think is bad at all i think that's interesting i i think that's one of the gateway uh aspects to it that get uh ethereum and ethereum's blockchain in consumers hands which i think is a great thing for cryptocurrency at large Mm -hmm. um because i think i think people use ethereum more than they use any of the others because of the nft space um which kind of which if you do the math that shows in the gas fees because there so many people so many people are using it it's putting so much pressure um, but then there is something like a Cardano. So Cardano, they are primarily in the business of perfecting smart contracts. Ethereum does do smart contracts, um, but they do them. Uh, I, I think Ethereum, Vitalik Buterin in general, he's not he's not as interested in taking smart contracts to the next level where he's really trying to push them onto businesses and the consumer for constant transactions that are um that are really outside of the nft space i'm not sure, as corporate I'm sure, and and more leisure yeah yeah it's 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 more leisure and i think I, i'm sure in the back of his mind he has plans to get smart contracts out of the leisure space and into the more real world space where maybe a bit one business with another business is using a smart contract for a transaction um, but for Cardano, for instance, they are specifically in the business of perfecting smart contracts and also pushing them out to the public for public use. So for businesses, you know, you could have like a business contract and say you could create a smart contract. You put that on the chain. It's cleaner. It's more efficient. It executes on its own. It just makes sense for a big company. Um, you could also do other things with smart contracts that are really interesting, too, that Cardano is pursuing that at least currently, Ethereum is not. For interest, you could um, you could do something like a mortgage in a smart contract. So this is where we start getting into um, real-world solutions for blockchain technology. You could put a passport. Instead of having a, a paper passport, what if you were able to just send, in the form of a smart contract, a passport to a given country or something like that, and it's able to show. So well, that would be really, really handy too. Because um, if anyone's signed up for uh, something online, or maybe um, they're getting a government clearance or something like that, and it's requiring them to provide proof of their identity in the form of like an ID or a driver's or a uh, passport or something like that, it would be really convenient if you could just um, give them the, the the transaction that has your passport associated with it. Instead of having to send them like a, a photocopy of it, and then you're and then you're sending it out to somebody, and it's kind of a pain in the butt. Right. I mean, everyone knows the the headaches that can come with the with the paper centric system that we still have to a large extent. Although 
computers have taken a lot of that legwork out. We still do have quite a lot of things in paper, such as, you know, documents, passports, mortgages, um, you know, your, your, your leases, things like that. You still do have quite a bit of things in paper form. This is just my opinion, but I think, I think Cardano could be that catalyst that takes us into the, like computers were, were a stage that took us into a lot less of a paper used, um, you know, system just functionally in the world, whether it's, you know, United States or just uh, worldwide, it really took us, uh, it took a much more efficient route in where we have a lot less paper. We have PDFs now. We have things that can easily be sent back and forth. I think Cardano and how Cardano is wanting to implement smart contracts, I think it's going to be that next step into a paperless society. Um, and I think as we get further and further into the 21st century, I think that that is actually going to come to fruition in a big way, which is why Cardano is... If I had to rate conviction or... I wouldn't even say conviction. If I had to rate value propositions for each coin, which obviously is subjective, so this is just my opinion, I would say Ethereum has the most use cases right now. I would say I would say something... I would say Cardano is probably number two um, because smart contracts are, have such a real world usability to them, even outside of business. Um, I think smart contracts is going to become an everyday wor household word over the next 10 years. And I think Cardano is going to be at the forefront of that, of why that is rather. That makes sense. The, the biggest problem that we would face with something like that is adoption. And you have to have people comfortable with um, being a part of a smart contract in whatever capacity that's required. Um, right. And, and Ethereum in their own space, like they've already more solely in the NFT space, they've conquered adoption they, because I think they've smartly first approached it from the novelty aspect. Um, you know, tons of people are adopting an NFT, even if it's like, a you know, usually in headlines, you hear like the half million dollar NFT or the $60 million NFT, you know, you hear about people like people right. who yeah. sold tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars in NFTs of their own artwork. Like there's plenty of NFTs out there you can buy for like five or 10 bucks. Like it's extremely accessible. Like not every NFT is hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Also, not all of them are paintings um, right. or digital art, I should say. It's uh, NFTs are really just something, it's, it's really any asset that can be represented on the blockchain uh, and it's non-fungible, so. Right, and, and this is where you do get the, you do get a pretty quick distinction from Cardano and Ethereum. The vast majority of NFTs in the Ethereum network is novelty, whereas the vast majority of the NFT space in say Cardano is real world um things you know things like contracts and things like right. that so that's where that's really where you get a, a divergence from ethereum and cardano uh wasn't really meant to be necessarily ethereum cardano discussion but it is it is um i think it is noteworthy to point out the differences and where both ethereum and cardano basic basically have this exact same blockchain but there's a massive difference in how they're trying to apply it as a value proposition um, and change the world in their own way. Right. Um, and speaking of divergence, uh, what, is, what is a hard fork? So a hard fork, so there are two types of forks. There's a hard fork and a soft fork. 
Uh, a hard fork is when the blockchain nodes or miners uh, agree by consensus to make a change to the protocol. Protocol you can basically think of as a basic set of rules, uh, guidelines, as uh, Barbosa would say, <laughs> uh, of the blockchain network. Uh, yeah, and you may be thinking, you know, why would I do that? Um, so there's a couple reasons why you would do that. So it does help address uh, any possible security concerns that may arise. So maybe hackers' abilities um, can increase, you know, say technolo te technological advancement in some way. And this isn't even like a problem now. Like security is not a problem now, just, just to make a distinction. But the, the nice part about hard forks is it allows um, adaptability within the blockchain network. And, you know, say 20, 30 years from now, if, you know, hackers became so technologically advanced, it was somehow then possible to possibly crack the network. The network, if they see that coming in the distance or they see a technology comes out that could possibly rival and hack uh, blockchain technology, you can create what's called a hard fork. Um, and and uh, hard forks, uh, in order for a hard fork to be, get passed, it's almost like a bill in the Senate all of the miners or people that run the miners, they actually get to have a vote on what you would change about the blockchain. Um, mm -hmm. And you have to have a majority vote. Uh, I do believe it's it's only 51%. Um, so hard fork is usually implemented when you want to make like massive updates to, to or something that requires uh, massive updates to the existing blockchain network. In your example, it was because of a hacker became the, the tools that the hackers have became uh, much more hmm, exploitable against the current system and some new upgrade patches would need to be uh, implemented as soon as possible. Right, and, that, and that's just one kind of Armageddon instance of, of what a hard fork could be used for. That's 99.9% that's .9 of the time not what a hard fork is used for. That's just one use case. Another one would be to add to the functionality of the blockchain network, which would, which could possibly make it more efficient to come to a consensus. So maybe you find a more efficient way of going about um, completing a block, you know, maybe something like that. So you would update the protocol or the set of rules um, that would allow for that efficiency to be exploited. Um, the third thing would be it also helps actually to solve uh, disagreements uh, by people running the that people running the nodes uh, may have about the blockchain. Um, so say, say it's, say you have something, maybe a protocol about the blockchain. Um, and a lot of the miners, which this has actually happened back in uh, 2017, a lot of the miners or the people running the miners, rather, um, the people who have the miners that stabilize the network, they disagree. They think this is inefficient or why is this this way? Or better yet, there's this better way. Why isn't the blockchain, um, you know, updating? Um, you know, those concerns can be brought up and, and you can have a hard fork vote uh, and that hard fork vote can be passed. Um, that's actually something that happened with the Bitcoin network in 2021. So there were two main for reference to, to look back at the Bitcoin network, there are two main hard forks that have happened. There's a hard fork that happened in 2017 and then a hard fork that happened in 2021. The hard fork that happened in 2017 uh, is actually quite controversial. It actually barely passed. I don't know the actual vote count, but it, it barely passed the 51% um, majority, whereas the 2021 hard fork passed with, I believe, 93% um, favorability basically the vote tally was 93% for the hard fork. 
Um, so it, you can have controversial hard forks, but again, it does take 51% to get there. So you do need a majority vote. Um, so that that is one of the reasons. It's a good way of thinking of a hard fork is is a bit of an update to the network. Um, now you do have things called soft forks, which are a little different. Soft forks are much more, they do still deal with the protocol. Um, but in blockchain technology, uh, a soft fork is a change to the software protocol, whereas previously valid transaction blocks are made invalid because the old nodes will recognize the new blocks as valid. Uh, a soft fork is backwards compatible, which means it still acknowledges the previous blocks before it. A hard fork is not. So that uh, SegWit that I was talking about, or Segregate Witnesses. Or, was that sorry, 2017? Uh, that was, uh, it was presented in 2015. I'm not sure exactly when it went into effect. It might have been the same year, but that was a soft fork. Okay, so that was a form of a soft fork. Yeah. Right, so that would have been a, 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 the SegWit, was it called? SegWit, Segregated Se Witness. Se okay, SegWit. Yeah, that would be that would be an 2017. example. Twenty seventeen. That would be an example of a soft fork. So, yeah, it was a, it was a twenty seventeen soft fork. Okay, May maybe that was the one that was controversial. I don't think so though. I think no, there was. I think was, there was, was a lot a more. Fork. I think it was like that Bitcoin Cash. Maybe was that the twenty fifth? The twenty seventeen hard fork. Is it? Uh, that was. Or maybe it was. Maybe it was. Bitcoin Cash, yeah. Bitcoin Cash was the result of some. some I guess some people didn't like SegWit, which was the the soft fork that they implemented in 2017. So that was what the controversy was over. It was over SegWit, and then some. It says some Bitcoin developers uh, and users decided to initiate a hard fork in order to avoid the protocol updates it brought about. Bitcoin Cash was the result of this hard fork. It split off from the main blockchain on August of 2017 when Bitcoin Cash wallets rejected Bitcoin transactions and blocks. So am I understanding this correctly? So SegWit was the soft fork. Yep. It got implemented. The miners said, we don't like SegWit. We would like to hard fork off of the soft fork. And then what, and then what SegWit, the blockchain SegWit belonged to, went from Bitcoin to Bitcoin Cash. Is that correct? Uh, so it, I, I think if I'm understanding you correctly, um, basically SegWit was a software, which means that the, the blockchain stayed intact. The main Bitcoin blockchain yeah. stayed intact. It was the same blockchain. It just implemented some security features. Um, or in this case, it was SegWit, which is, um, we mentioned earlier, it was just a way to free up space in the block. So as to sort of increase the block size, um, these, current developers and users of Bitcoin didn't like that, so they hard forked off in the main chain and created their um, their hard fork, which was Bitcoin. And that, and that hard fork is what Bitcoin is known as today in terms of like nope. that. That's no. actually Bitcoin Cash. Bitcoin, the hard fork, the resulting hard fork is Bitcoin Cash. Okay, well, I, I was thinking about the, uh, yeah. So if that's, if that's the case, then what is, what is the Bitcoin network today is that, that is that a same it's the same network that has segwit implemented right 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 i had it backwards but i meant the same thing okay yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. the current bitcoin network as we know it today has segwit implemented however there is um bitcoin cash a bitcoin doesn't cash well bitcoin cash I, I i heard it wasn't doing so hot 
Uh, I don't. I mean, it's not near as popular. There's probably a there's probably a handful of people listening right now that don't even know what Bitcoin Cash is or that it exists. I'm gonna be honest. I don't. I have not done a whole lot of research into it. It's currently trading at three hundred and sixty-eight dollars as of um, today, which is what the eighth. What is today? Yeah, the eighth. Yeah. Um. I I, I have not heard. I've heard a lot of people kind of just don't care too much for it they don't really see the point of it um I, i've heard maybe some negative things about it but i, I really can't I, say i, I know a little or nothing so i won't comment on it i don't yeah i don't know a whole lot about it i just know that this is a result bitcoin cash was a result of some disagreements between bitcoin yeah a little bit of a divergence part. but i don't me personally as as a as a primarily an investor i don't understand why people because when you put money in this, it's it's basically an investment. I don't understand why you would invest in a hard fork. I don't understand that. Like, why why are hard forks worth anything, and, but the current chain is basically the one that has all the liquidity? I don't understand that. Well, the, the reason why somebody might want to invest in a hard fork is because you agree with the people who are hard forking. You say, oh, I, I think that Bitcoin Cash has some valid concerns. I like the way they're doing things better. I think that this is going to end up being the better blockchain tech than Bitcoin is. So, mm. so say, say, for example, the current uh, developers um, and the people who run Bitcoin wanted to come out and make some really controversial changes to it. Like half, if not most, of the crypto community um, hates it. They say this is stupid. Right. This is completely against what this was originally about. These upgrades aren't worth it, whatever. So the community decides to hard fork and make something like Bitcoin 2022 or Bitcoin the better or something like that. Right. If I mean, it's entirely possible the developers of Bitcoin shoot themselves in the foot and completely destroy the blockchain. And then the hard fork, which kind of takes a step back and maybe it reintroduces um, some of the the older features or maybe the more loved features of Bitcoin and then added some 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 better features so they they over they based it off of the original Bitcoin blockchain but they added some improvements or rolled back some bad improvements and made it the way they wanted and if the majority of people believe that that is the better blockchain moving forward they would invest their money in it Bitcoin would lose its value. The hard fork would increase in value, right? Um, but that's clearly not the case in this in this um, example. Bitcoin Cash is considerably less valuable than so. Than so, Bitcoin. so, so the simple pitch, basically, to an investor to invest in a hard fork instead of the actual main fork, would be the main fork is making some serious mistakes here. Eventually, that's going to come back to haunt them. You should invest in us because eventually, as people realize those problems, we're going to come on the rise, and then eventually we could even take over the main chain in terms of value. Yeah, I mean, in this case, the hard fork wasn't it wasn't hard forked by the people running Bitcoin. It was it was hard forked by people who um, were who used to be a part of Bitcoin but didn't like the direction it was going. So the two really aren't linked. It's just it's just the code the the code that built the bitcoin network is based off this the main network and if you're a software developer like i am this is similar to using like um like git or github if you've ever seen some code stored on github it's a code base which means people who develop their code put all their code in this one spot that all the developers can access and if they have like 
um, executables or like binaries that can be installed on someone's machine or computer, they can go here, download it, and install it. But what developers can do on GitHub, if it's a public project, is hit the fork button. And what that does is it takes all of their code and brings it into your account, into your own repository, mm. your own little uh, bucket of code. And you can do with that code whatever you want. You can change it however you want. However, you're not related to the person in any way. You're not affiliated with that person in any way um, who had the original project. So if you go onto a website, or if you go onto like a GitHub repository, and you can see how many people have forked it, sometimes there's thousands of forks. I'm sure, because, yeah, you so, slightly disagree. You, you like 95% of it, but you're like, I'll, I'll change that 5% hard fork, I'll, and then you go and change it? Right, yeah, essentially. Yeah. And a, a, I, think, I think this is an example of hard forking, well, forking in software development. There is something called OBS, which is the open broadcasting software, which is what most streamers and uh, live video producers will use to broadcast some, some live stream to the internet. OBS is open, open source, so its code is public on the internet. There's also something people use called uh, OBS Streamlabs, which seems like it would be by the same people. It created by the same developers. Um, it's not. It was a fork, I believe, from the original OBS project and tweaked to make it um, maybe more user-friendly, um, added some new features specifically that Twitch streamers could use and stuff like that. So a lot of Twitch streamers will use OBS or Streamlabs OBS over um, the standard OBS. They do f almost the same thing. OBS was the original but Streamlabs OBS takes it a step further and adds some extra features and stuff like that. So I, th I think it's mm. a comparable example. Yeah. So all that to say, that, that, that was a lot That was a lot of info about hard forks and soft forks, but if you wanted, if you wanted to take away like a quick definition of, uh, of a fork, whether it's a hard fork or soft fork, uh, forks happen to help the blockchain, specifically talking about crypto now, Forks happen to help the blockchain adapt and stay on top of any security concerns or deficiencies that may come up in the network. It's that simple. It's it's an update. It's it, think of it as an update. It really is that simple. Yeah. Right. Uh, do, didn't we have a question? Yep. Uh, so at the end of the podcast, we're going to try to do some quick Q and A's. Um, we uh, we have one question that we got from our TikTok or sorry TikTok platform. Um, from a user named Skits, and he asked us, what value do you think crypto adds to society? And um, I thought it was a really interesting question. Um, it wasn't a, a comment uh, to attack us or anything like it that. It seemed he pretty genuine. Clear, but yeah, he, yeah. Uh, he was concerned uh, about what our thoughts were on what crypto, what value it adds. And clearly we think it adds um, a significant amount of value or else we wouldn't be doing this podcast. Right. Um, for me, it's because we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast, but there is a trustless system that is inherent to the blockchain tech and cryptocurrency with it. It makes your transactions more secure, it makes them anonymous, and it could potentially make them faster. And I think that alone, just as a currency, um, would be something extremely valuable to society. There are other people who, especially content creators or digital artists who like to 
uh, wrap their digital art as an NFT and sell it online. It's a good stream of income for them. So for them, that that's some value that they could have as a <clears throat> digital creator. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What about you? For me, I I would break it down into four main areas. Um, I think one is we've touched on quite a bit today, which is the security of, of blockchain. Um, I think it's quite possibly the, I mean, you, you would know better than me. To me, it's the most secure form of technology we have on the planet right now. Um, I'm. I guess I'm not sure. Specifically from enough, a specifically yeah. from from a transactional standpoint, it's the most secure way we have to process transactions right now. It seems to me to be, um, unless there's something that I don't know about. You're right. So the second way would be the uh, second thing for me would be it is much faster. Uh, we talked about this a little bit the last episode. It's so much faster than the current banking system in terms of processing transactions. Massive plus. Everyone knows the two to three day, sometimes even five day settlement. Um, for example, I actually needed to pay my uh, minor electric. Uh, I needed to send it from my BlockFi account, which is where I have uh, my crypto, to PayPal. Uh, it took six business days. Said it was going to take five, took six. If PayPal happened to be on the blockchain, it would have taken about six minutes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, give, give or take. But the, but the point is, there's there's such a there's such a latency and delay in society of the transferring of money. Um, I think I think blockchain and and because blockchain crypto in general also solves that problem. Uh, again, it's trustless. Uh, you know, we talked about that a little bit last episode. Would you would you rather trust someone? Or would you rather trust no one and get the same result? I rather trust no one. Um, I think that is a massive plus. Um, you know, I don't know to what extent because I don't know the protocols that are in place at these banks, but you do kind of have to trust someone inside that bank to put your money in there and to not pocket it. Sure, they could lose their job and all that. They could, you know, but they could hightail out of town with, you know, the cash, you know, that you give them or whatever. Uh, which is one of the reasons, one of the reasons I don't like to deposit the cash. I'm kind of paranoid about that. I always do like check, uh, but it's probably because I've been stolen before in cash. Um, but like they, like it, you do have some level of trust when when you put cash into a bank or, or a check into the bank, just with the actual transaction process. You you can have zero trust with that in crypto and still maintain top notch cutting edge security. That's a that's a third massive plus, and the fourth plus for me is the one a lot of people talk about it's in the mainstream media it's the fact that it is uh fixed in terms of value and the vast some of them can but talking about the main ones um specifically bitcoin it's a it has a fixed amount of supply and it cannot be inflated it cannot be manipulated that is a massive pl- for me personally as an investor that's that's at least 25% of the value security being the other 25% right. easily like that's that you you can't you you really can't put a number on lack of manipulation because you because if something is able to be manipulated you can't put a number on how much that it's going to be manipulated you know people from 1920 have no idea how much how little buying power they were going to have in 2020 if that same dollar applied you know you, you, there's no way for you to know there's no way for us to know with our dollar bill how much it's going to get inflated over the next 10 years you can make guesstimates the fed can say we're shooting for this but it's going to get inflated and and you're not really in control of how much inflation it's it's going to get well it's it it is true that it's really it's really great that it's not going to be um 
you know, you know that I'm just going to print a whole bunch of more Bitcoins and it's going to get inflated that way. However, it, it is important. Price action. Yeah. Yeah, I know you're going to bring that up. It is, it is important to know that um, it can still sort of suffer from inflation and not not its not not its own but it, it it's like if for example if the u.s economy everything's starting to cost more and you want to pay for things in this u.s economy with bitcoin you're still right. going to have to provide more bitcoin um prior than when before the inflation right which is why the 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 fixed supply of it in and of itself wouldn't be enough for me to invest in it because it doesn't solve all of the problems uh, that it's that it would necessarily be pitching to me. It's like great. That's that's nice. We we need more of lack of manipulation. However, once you take that aspect and you start combining it with the fact that, you know, people like Cardano and Ethereum, they're tra- they're starting to solve real world problems. You combine that with the lack of fiat. You combine that with a trustless system. You combine that with the security of the system. All these things start to add up. So, any one of these things makes crypto interesting. Makes blockchain interesting. But all of these things start to combine together and you realize you have something generational on your hands that is really worth investing in and is going to only become more valuable as um, the solutions they're trying to implement become more and more valuable and are used by more and more people every day. Right. And and I'm not no financial advisor and uh, definitely say or take what we say with a grain of salt. But right now, crypto is on sale. It's like major on sale in our opinion in our opinion hashtag, hashtag not financial advice uh i'm buying the dip <laughs> yeah if, if you if you're even a little bit interested in crypto and you want to get into it at a good point right now is a great point to get in because everything's down a lot if anything goes back to even what it was a month ago you're making money a week ago a week ago <laughs> two weeks ago three yeah. weeks ago it's been going down yeah but me now, personally, I, I'm buying it's on the sale. Yeah, not not financial advice, but if if you are at this point, maybe you've watched both episodes. You're you went from I'm curious to I'm extremely interested, and maybe you have some spare change sitting around. Uh, it would be a good time um, to get in. Like if if you're thinking maybe a week or two from now, um, maybe I, I'm I, I'm definitely not one to rush my financial decisions. Um, I'm not about that. Um, I usually like to sleep on things, you know, multiple nights usually. But if you are, if if you are even close to convinced, and you're just thinking, I wonder when I should pull the trigger. Now, that now would be the time. It might drop a little bit, but if it drops, again, if you're trying to trade crypto, scrap everything we're saying. Uh, trading crypto, you know, this is this isn't about trading. This is about if you want to buy it. And hold it as an investment for a year, for, two years, three years, yeah, or longer, or, or ten, or twenty. You know, if you're extremely long on it, uh, now's a great time. Yep, in my opinion. <laughs> no, I would agree with that opinion. But uh, yeah, so if I had to, if I had to put it down to four things to answer the question, it would be the security, the speed of the transactions, the trustless system, and the fixed supply of certain coins. Not all coins. The fixed supply of certain coins. Right. So that's all we've got. Um, if you this is the first time listening, we have other social media platforms. We've got Instagram, we've got TikTok, we've got Facebook. Uh, all those will be in the description. Right, yeah, yeah. We're going to have links to all those. We post shorter clips of this podcast for easier consumption if you don't have two and a half hours of your day to dedicate or two and a half hours of your week, quite frankly. I know it's a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we've got 
the smaller, more important, notable clips broken down. We're going to post up post those on our social. And uh, next, do you know what we're talking about next week? I don't think we've decided. Yeah, we're, we're going to start we'll talking about uh, various coins. So if you're interested in learning about different coins and if you're sort of on the fence about which ones to invest in or if, in any at all, we're going to start talking about some of those every week, hopefully give you guys a little more information about them. Yeah, we, we got we got traditional, man. Traditional. Yeah.